Today, we'll be focusing on the end of 1 John chapter 3. We're going to look at the levels of love that John describes here. Now, we are going to skip over chapter 4 because we've used so much of chapter 4. We've referenced it so much in these last few sermons that we're just going to move to chapter 5. And then the week after that, we will finish up at the end of chapter 5. So let's pray and we'll look at these different levels of love that John describes for us. Father, we come uh, into your presence again, uh, and we are so thankful that you give us the opportunity to do that, that we can enter into the throne room anytime we want because of what your son has done for us. And so as we, as we just continue to worship you, we, we pray that you will help us to fully grasp what it is you want us to hear from your word today. We are so thankful that we have it, that it works in our lives, that it it allows us to become more and more like your son. And today we, we will see that. There's, there's some dark pieces of, of the scripture today that, that John points out. And that's okay. We need to hear that. We need to understand it. We need to not be involved in it, but we need to hear it. And we need to help people get out of it. And so in all of this and these different levels we'll look at today, Lord, help us uh, to always be in the right place where we are always within your will, not our own, but yours only. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So since our family has moved here, we're pretty well settled in. Uh, we've gotten the chance to go out and, and do some of the hiking trails uh, here locally and, and maybe an hour or so away. Abby and the boys have done a little bit more than I have. But virtually all of those trails have been pretty well maintained. They've been pretty well marked. Uh, whether you're here kind of in the Rocky Mountains or if you even go back to the Appalachian Mountains, those trails, when you get into a state park or a national park, those trails are normally well-maintained and you're not going to get lost as long as you stay on the trail. Now, if you veer off the trail, if you go uh, out into the undeveloped areas or if you're on private land, that's a totally different situation. But the, the best way to not get lost is to stay on the trail. If you have to go off the trail, then you ought to have at least a map and a compass. Those are two key things if you're going to go out into the woods where there is no well-marked trail. Uh, in Scouts, they, they taught us how to use a compass. It's not terribly difficult, but it came in handy more times than I thought it would in the different treks that we went on. A compass always points north because of the Earth's, or the Earth's magnetic field. The compass responds essentially to the nature of the Earth because you can always find north on a compass. You can then change the dial and you know what direction you're heading in, which is really important if you are off in the woods or you're lost. This is the same way that life with Christ can operate. If you know God, you're a child of God, then you can respond to the nature of God. Just like a compass points north, always does because of the earth's nature, a Christian ought to always point towards love because that is the nature of who God is. But sometimes we don't always do that. Sometimes we get our, our spiritual compass a little off. Sometimes we're not dialed in correctly and it leads us down a path where we shouldn't be. And we can get lost and we can begin to do things that Christ would not want us to do. And in our text this morning, John will describe for us 
some levels of love. I don't know if that's the best description. Maybe it's levels of relationship. Uh, the first few are not going to be pretty. It's really what it looks like when that compass is, is not being used at all and you're just walking off into, into the woods and, and you get into the weeds and it is not where we ought to be. Completely lost is the way John will kind of describe it. He starts in a very dark place here. I don't know why. Maybe he had a bad day when he wrote this. I'm not sure what was going on, but the compass will slowly make its way to true north, to the true nature of what it means to live in Christ. So here's the first level. Again, it's not pretty. The first level is murder. I know what you're thinking. You've lost your mind, Ross. I promise. Uh, This is just where he starts. I don't know why John starts here, but this is where he starts. And so I'm going to begin where he begins. He does mention right off the bat that we have to love one another, but he's going to contrast this love that we ought to have for one another with, with murder, because that is the opposite as far between those two things as you can get. So here's what he says. 1 John 3.11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So when we're talking about levels of relationship, obviously murder, that's the lowest level you can get. You do not have a good relationship if that's the case. And, And so John brings up this relationship between Cain and Abel. Cain is unfortunately an example of a murderer. And John is warning us, this is definitely not how you love one another. This is the worst level you can be on. And I think, in a sense, he's kind of warning us about the false teachers. That was something that he struggled with a lot. And when he's writing this letter, there are people infiltrating the church, and they're trying to kill the church. And so I think that's part of what he's trying to say, that there will be people who try to kill the church, just like Cain killed his brother. So don't operate that way. Cain and Abel were brothers, from the same parents. They both offered a sacrifice. They both worshiped God. But sometimes Satan and his children masquerade as real believers when they're not. And they attend religious gatherings just like Cain did. They might even bring an offering like he did. But those, those actions are not all the proof that you are a follower of Christ. They're not proof of real love. The true test is, do you actually love your brother? And obviously Cain failed that test. Now the difference between Cain's offering and Abel's offering was faith. Hebrews 11.4 tells us this. It says, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval for his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. So we don't know exactly how this went, but at some point God described to Cain and Abel, here's how I want you to worship me. This is what it should look like. This is what you should bring. This is what your offering should be. So he described that. We don't know what it was, but, but he set those rules in place. And Cain chose not to worship like that. He chose to worship in the way that he wanted to. Now, we don't know how God demonstrated to them that Abel's offering was approved and Cain wasn't. Was it fire coming down from heaven? We don't know. What we do know is how Cain left. He was angry. 
He was dejected. He was disappointed. And then God warns him. He says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. I can feel the anger inside you. Be careful with that. And instead of hearing the warning, Cain comes up with a plot to kill his brother. That envy had turned to anger, and rather than repent, he murders his brother. Fast forward several centuries, and the religious leaders of Jesus' day did the same thing to him. They came up with a plot to get rid of him. That's why he calls them children of the devil in in John chapter 8. He says that that you are children of the devil and and that Satan is, is a murderer at heart from the very beginning. Jesus exposed sin, and they didn't like that, just like Cain was exposed. And when that happens, typically when when your sin is exposed, whether it's exposed to the whole church or whether your sin is just exposed to your family or a friend, you really respond in two different ways. You either repent and you apologize and you ask for forgiveness or you try to get rid of the one who is exposing you. Whatever that looks like. In Cain's case, it was murder. Don't do that. Okay. Obviously, but, but you know what we do? Sometimes we still try to kill people's reputations. It's, it's murdering of a reputation by slandering them, by gossiping about them. Because not everyone likes the light to be shined into their life. They don't always deal with that so well. And I've experienced that where somebody tried to ruin my reputation. It's not fun. This is not a level we need to hang out in. This is Satan's level. This is where he belongs. This is where he lives. This is where he operates. He was a murderer from the very beginning. And so we don't hang out here. Growing up, my dad and I would often, on Saturday mornings, if we had time, we would watch some John Wayne movies together. Uh, You know, the Duke. You remember AMC used to have those on. And so we'd sit down and watch a movie. And one one of John Wayne's Uh, more memorable movies was True Grit. And at the end of that movie, there's a little girl who falls into a deep pit. And in that pit is a very uh, mad rattlesnake. And, And of course, John's doing his thing outside, killing all the bad guys. And eventually, when he's finished with that, he comes to rescue this little girl out of the pit. But in the meantime, she's having to fight off this rattlesnake and actually gets gets bit. And what the world around us doesn't understand is that they are in the same kind of pit and there is a snake in that pit. There is a serpent. And he wants to destroy anything he can, especially the children of God. And he especially doesn't want those who are unsaved to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so he strikes and he strikes. And if the unsaved world could just understand that they are in a pit with the serpent, living on that lower level, this level where it's murder and lies, and and it's just ugly. We have to tell them where they are. And that's not the easiest thing to do, but we have to say something. 
Because Jesus, or God himself, loved Cain enough that he said something. And Jesus, in his ministry, loved people enough to tell them when they were in the midst of sin. We have to do the same to pull them out of this level. Jesus said in John 5, 21, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus raises the bar. He says, if you're even angry with a brother, that is like murder. We can't operate in this level. Now, the difference between level one and and level two is really just the difference between taking a life. The inward intent is the same because level two, John says, is hatred. I promise we'll get more positive as we go along here, I promise. But this is what John is presenting. So we're gonna, we're gonna live in the text. We're gonna let the text win this morning. Hatred is just one level up from murder because Jesus equates that anger, that, that hatred with murder. In fact, he equates lust with committing adultery. Sometimes the question we need to ask is not what did you do, but what did you think about doing? Because we have a thought life that has to come under the reign of Christ as well. We have to take even our thoughts captive. Because our thoughts can become the actions like what we see with Cain. And so it's not enough just to not have the physical. We also need to work on the mental. So John says this in 1 John 3.13. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, and it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. So we haven't moved up much. Like according to John, we haven't really moved up hardly at all. Now is, is hate and murder the same thing? Not exactly. I'd rather you hate me than murder me. Like, If that's all the options that I have, I'll take the hate. But in God's sight, hate is the moral equivalent to murder. And if left unchecked, it just grows. And as Christians, we can't have that hate, guys. We can't have it. Occasionally, yeah, you're going to get upset with a brother or sister, but you can't stay there. If you stay in this habit of hate, you will be miserable. You'll be miserable spiritually. You'll start to be miserable physically. And you will probably make the people around you miserable. But there's hope. There is hope to get out of this level and and to move on. In fact, we see it in the life of Paul. Because Paul kind of operated in both of these levels. You think about him in in Acts chapter 7. And they put all the coats at his feet. And then they stoned Stephen. And in a sense, he is, he is a witness to, he is agreeing with this murder. And then in Acts, I believe it's 26, he actually talks about how he cast a vote to send people to death. And so Paul has operated in level one and certainly level two, but through the grace of God, he was saved. 
So you can make it out of this place, but you cannot harbor that hatred in your heart. Scripture tells us that hatred does more damage to the, to the one hating than the one you are trying to hate against. Matthew 5.25 says, When you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Jesus wants us to settle our differences and rid ourselves of the hate that we might have. And the antidote for hatred is always going to be love. I always, when a hateful heart opens up to Christ, it can be changed, changed forever. Titus 3, verse 3, describes this transformation from hate to love. We read this, Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled, became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But... When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. We can't be people who nurture hate. If you nurture hate towards someone, it's going to grow, and it it doesn't look nice. One of the worst cases of, of hate that I have ever found was in a will written in 1935 by a Mr. Donahue. Listen to what he wrote. Unto my two daughters, Frances Marie and Denise Victoria, by reason of their unfilial attitude toward a doting father, in other words, they didn't act like daughters to him, they were rebellious, he says this, I leave the sum of one dollar to each and a father's curse May their lives be fraught with misery, unhappiness, and pointed sorrow. May their deaths be soon and of a lingering, malignant, and torturous nature. Chill out, Dad. You know, like, wow. I don't know what these girls did, but he had a tough time with them. And, and it gets worse. I'm not even going to read the rest. Like, it gets worse. That's what happens, though. That didn't happen in a day. That didn't happen in an instance. That wasn't a one-time thing. He let that build and build, and it just ate him up until it was nasty. We can't let that happen. We need to heed the words of Paul in Ephesians 4.26, where he says, And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. You've got to deal with it. You've got to work on it. You know, James tells us in James 1.19 to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I quote that at the boys sometimes. They don't like that much, but, but I do it. But, but the truth is we quote uh, James 1.19, but it's really James 1.20 that tells us why we should do James 1.19. We kind of leave the 20 out, but here's what James says in 1.20. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. He desires us to live this righteous life and to keep hatred at bay, not in the heart. Next level, I wouldn't say it's positive, but it's better than the first two. Okay, the next level is indifference. It's kind of a level of complacency. True Christian love is not just the absence of evil. So you can't say, well, I don't do evil things, so therefore I love them. No, no. True Christian love is not the absence of evil. It is the involvement of good. 
So here has, here's how John describes it in 1 John 3.16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? So you can't have real love for another brother or sister in Christ and see someone and then just be indifferent about their needs and, and just move on. That, that is not the way we operate. You can't say that you love somebody and then not care for their needs as it's staring you right in the face. Christian love involves sacrifice. It involves service. Self-preservation is, is sort of the, the first law of physical life, but self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. And that's how we have to operate. God is not always going to ask us to lay down our life physically. He might, but he does ask us to help a brother in need, to help a sister in need. Christian love is personal. It's active. In fact, that's what we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? When Jesus tells the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and, and this, this man who shouldn't stop and help someone is able to stop and, and, and do something that, especially because one is a Samaritan, and, and the whole reason that started was because a lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? And he wanted to be indifferent about it. He wanted to know, how far do I have to go? Because, I mean, I don't want to go too far. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not the right question. The right question is, who can you be neighborly to? Which is anyone and everyone, even your enemies. See, we don't have to murder someone to sin. Hatred is murder in the heart. We also don't have to hate our brother or sister to be guilty of sin because ignoring their needs, being indifferent to their needs, is sin as well. You have to, it's real easy to help someone. You need, you need three things. You need to have the ability to meet the need. You need the means, you need to know that a need exists, and you have to love them enough to share. That's it. Three simple conditions to help someone. Indifference is what has caused our society and our culture around us to deteriorate. That is why we're in the shape that we're in. Indifference may not seem like a big deal because that's what indifference says. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. I mean, you do you and I'll do me and, and it's fine. Go ahead, go ahead and live that life. It's no big deal. And it's that kind of attitude that has led to so many compromises in our culture and even in the church. I hear me today. We can't be indifferent anymore. We can't be indifferent about who leads our country. That's why you have to vote. We can't be indifferent about what is taught in our schools. We can't be indifferent about what is taught in our churches. The historian John Buchanan, he said this, whenever totalitarianism of any kind rears its ugly head, it's because ordinary people have stopped caring about the life of the people and the nation. It's indifference. I just don't care. We have to start Caring because cultural Christianity is not working. Us being weak and just reserved is not going to work. It's not going to change anything. That indifference and that kind of apathy 
doesn't work. I know that it sounds kind. I know it sounds kind to say, well, I don't want to rock the boat. Church, we got to rock the boat. Okay? We, we can't be... It is not actually kind to let people live on in sin. Kindness is telling them where they are and trying to get them out of those first two levels and even out of this level of indifference back to where they need to be. Titus 1.16 describes these kind of indifferent people. It says, Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient. And this last part is interesting. Worthless for doing anything good. Man, what is he saying? He's saying, I can't use you. I can't use you in the kingdom if you're going to be indifferent. I want to use you. I want you to go out and make a difference. But if you live in this state of apathy, I can't use you. You are worthless for doing anything good. A decade ago, Craig Rochelle wrote a book about this kind of indifference, this kind of apathy, and he called it, title of it was Christian Atheist. Believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. You see, there's no hatred. I mean, there's no murder, but there's a pile of apathy. There's an overwhelming portion of indifference and enough complacency to go around. This is not the level we hang out on, church. Indifference doesn't make a difference. So we can't be hanging out in this level. I promised you it would get better. We're, gonna, we're, we're at the last point, so it has to be better now. It has to be positive. So level four and these sort of levels of love, if you would call it that, John shows us is compassion. To love with compassion is to love not just in what you say. It is in what you say, but it's also in what you do. So we don't just talk about it. We also meet the need. People are attracted to this kind of thing, this kind of compassion, this genuine love. That's why people were attracted to Jesus, because they truly believed that he loved them. And that he had compassion for them. He met their physical needs and their spiritual needs and even fed them. I mean, all all of this, he is our picture of what compassion looks like. So John describes this in 1 John 3, 18. He says, dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we'll be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence and we'll receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of the son, of his son, Jesus Christ. That's first thing. But then the second is love one another, just as he has commanded us. And those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him, he with them, And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. See, our friendship with each other, our relationships with each other, actually affect our relationship with God. And the other way around. If you're not right with a brother or sister, you ought to go fix that right now. Jesus speaks to that in Matthew chapter 5. To love like Jesus means that we have this love full of compassion, a compassionate heart versus a condemning heart. 
A condemning heart is always judging things. It's always kind of negative and, and looking on, on the terrible side of things. You don't want the condemning heart. You want the compassionate heart, the positive heart that is always trying to bring people into a greater understanding of who Jesus is, always trying to help people grow. We want compassion, not condemning. We see this play out in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus visits Bethany, he stays at the house of Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha are kind of this example of compassion and condemning. And so it, it all takes place in Luke 10, 38. It says this, Martha welcomed him, Jesus, into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha had that, that kind of condemning heart, condemning her sister. Mary's not helping. Tell her to come help me. And Mary has the compassionate heart. She knows that to sit at the Lord's feet is where you need to be. And so Jesus defends her. Against Martha, we must learn to love in this same way, in the same kind of compassion that we see Christ having, because it was not just words. It was words. The way he spoke, the way he, he used his words to, to help people was incredible, but he also did it in, in action, in the way that he healed and the way that he watched over all kinds of different people at all different levels, he had such compassion. We need to model our lives after that. So there's four levels. Levels of love, so to speak, that you can operate in. The lowest level, that is Satan's level. It's murder. Revelation 21 says very clearly that anyone living on that level is going to face the same fate as Satan, and that is to be thrown into a fiery lake of burning sulfur. Okay, you don't want that. The second level is hatred, but hatred in God's sight is actually the same as murder. So when you live in hatred, you are kind of slowly killing yourself, not the person you hate. There's a, a psychological specialist who wrote a book called Love or Perish, and it was all about what happens to your body physically when you hate, and it, it's not pretty. He says you, you need, you're either going to love, or if you hate, you're going to perish. Third level is indifference. Yeah, it's better than the other two, because the first two aren't Christian at all. You know, a man who murders is, is essentially a child of Satan, that's what the text says, like Cain. But a man who hates belongs to the world that Satan is in control of. And a man who is indifferent really is living only for the flesh, only for themselves. And you're sort of operating with Satan's purposes. The only holy way to live is on level four with this Christian love that is compassionate. So here's what I want you to remember as you walk out of here. Please hear this. Loving one another is a matter of life and death. Do you understand that? It really and truly is. Loving one another is a matter of life and death. We see some death in this passage. It's ugly. But we see some life here too if we live like Jesus. And I want Jesus to kind of end our, our message today because I think obviously he knows better than any of us do 
when it comes to how we ought to live with compassion. Now, I'll be honest with you. These are hard words. These are hard things to put into practice. Maybe some of the hardest things that he said. But if we're going to talk about how to love one another, we've got to read this. This is Luke 6, 27. Jesus says, But to you who are willing to listen. Are you willing to listen? To you who are willing to listen, I say love your enemies. Ah, oh, come on, Jesus, come on. Yeah, but my enemies are not cool. Like, they're not, I don't like my enemies. I know, I know you don't. I need you to love them. I still need you to love them. Do good to those who hate you. Really? Mm-hmm, yep. Bless those who curse you. Okay. Pray for those who hurt you. You've gone too far. You know, I mean, it, it's hard, isn't it? So hard. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? I mean, even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, well, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. He said it again. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Are we? Oh. And then the last part. You must be compassionate. Compassionate. Just as your father is compassionate. And that's it. And there's, there's no need to add any more words to that. Love one another with compassion. And that includes your enemies. So you see, loving one another is a matter of life and death. It really is. Because how you love one another, especially someone who is a pre-Christian, who has not come to know Christ yet, or maybe has walked away from Christ, how you love one another will determine their eternity. Every little moment that you have, every little interaction that you have is an opportunity to bring someone a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to Christ. These first levels, we don't even, we don't even think about. We don't operate in those levels at all. Too many Christians are operating in that level of indifference where we just, we just are apathetic and we just sit back and well, somebody else will do it. The preacher will do it. He'll get all the people to the church, right? No, we're all called. We all have a ministry to reach out to those who are lost. But we can only do that if we have true compassion for them, even those who may be our enemies. Loving one another, it's a matter of life and death.